Could I ask you to turn to Exodus chapter 19? Subject, the the title for this study is The Goal of Redemption. And we're going to be reading some of the most important words in the Word of God tonight. Um, First of all, we'll go to Exodus 19, reading from verse 1. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Turn over then, please, to Exodus chapter 24. And again, we're going to read the first eight verses. Exodus 24, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning, And built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant And read it to the people. They responded. We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood. Sprinkled it on the people. And said. This is the blood of the covenant. That the Lord has made with you. In accordance with all these words. Verse 12. The Lord said to Moses. Come up to me on the mountain and stay here. 
And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. And finally, just one verse in Exodus 25, verse 8. The Lord says to Moses, Then let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Amen. Now, it may not be the wisest way to begin, but let me tell you that our task this evening is to cover the contents of 13 chapters of the book of Exodus. Exodus 19 through to the end of chapter 31. And if you're familiar with this section of the book, you'll know that the vast majority of the material consists in the listing of various laws and commandments on one hand, and the instructions for the building of the tabernacle on the other hand. And these are challenging chapters to read. And they just couldn't be any more different than the chapters that precede them. Those high-octane, action-filled chapters. But don't be fooled by the apparent dryness of these chapters. If we understand their function in the book of Exodus, that will give us a better appreciation of them. For as the title for this evening suggests, it's in these chapters that Israel discovers the goal of their redemption. This is what they've been heading towards. This is the purpose for which God took them out of Egypt. And once again, we shouldn't be surprised if we, through this God-given visual aid, are brought to discover the goal of our redemption in Christ. But I do want to be realistic about what we can hope to achieve in a single study. And what I want to do is I want to leave you with a way to approach these chapters for yourself that will allow you to see the big picture and not to get bogged down in the detail of the text. So my suggestion is this. Here is what I find a useful approach. And it's to identify Moses's various ascents up Mount Sinai. For they provide a narrative framework for the material presented in these chapters, these lists of laws and commandments and instructions for how to build a tent. So what I'm going to encourage you to do is to take your Bible in your hand and work with me as we put down some markers that will guide us through this section of the book of Exodus. And I'll I'll just put the headings up for the seven ascents of Moses. Um, And I'll try to summarize the significance of each 
of Moses' ascents as we go. Now, let me tell you what you're going to see on the screen, you're going to be getting on a handout. But I suggest that if ever there was a night for note-taking, you might find this is it. So, we will begin with the first ascent, which we read, the verses, from chapter 19, verse 3, to the first part of verse 8. One of the most important passages in the entire Old Testament. It is God's proposal to the nation of Israel. And I want you to hear that in the sense of a marriage proposal. That's how this has always been understood by the Jewish people. It's God's invitation to the people that he has redeemed out of slavery in Egypt to enter into an exclusive and loyal relationship with him and to become his treasured possession. To be a unique people among all the peoples of the earth who will be for him a holy kingdom of priests. This special, this honored relationship will be Israel's if they agree to obey God fully and to keep his covenant. Now, please note that this offer of a special relationship is made to a redeemed people. Israel's redemption, their deliverance from the wrath of God and from the power of Pharaoh, was not secured through their keeping of the law. It's right there in the text. Grace comes first. The covenant, the law, will serve as God's instrument of government for his redeemed people going forward. Their obedience to the law will determine whether they will live as a holy nation of priests, honoring God in their midst and shining his light to the surrounding nations. And sadly, we know how that played out in Israel's subsequent history. But Moses is instructed to tell the people the purpose that lay behind all that God had done for Israel. Chapter 19, verse 4, highlighted in bold whatever way. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What an important word that is. Yes, God will in due time bring the people to Canaan, to the promised land. But Canaan itself 
is not the ultimate goal of Israel's redemption. God is. Now, we Christians would never get confused on that, would we? We'd never think about or talk about heaven as if it was our goal. Do you know there is not a single verse in the New Testament that says that Jesus is coming again to take us to heaven? Not a single verse. That's never how the Christian's hope is presented. Jesus is coming again to take us to be with himself. John 14. Going to prepare a place for you. Coming again. If it wasn't so, I would have told you. Coming to take you to myself that you will be where I am. That's what he prays in John 17. Father, I pray that those that you have given me will be with me where I am. With me. When Paul talks about the Christian's hope in 1 Thessalonians 4, you know, the Lord will descend from heaven, the trump of the archangel, all that will happen, and we will rise to, the Lord will take us to himself, and we'll be with the Lord in the air. Now, don't misunderstand me. Of course, for Israel, Canaan would become the context within which Israel would enjoy the fullness of their inheritance. Just as heaven, or more accurately, the new heaven and the new earth, will be the context within which we enjoy the fullness of our promised inheritance. But God did not wait until Israel was in the land to come and live among his people. And God does not wait until we are in heaven to bring us to the goal of our salvation, his presence with us and within us by his spirit. I'm getting ahead of myself on that. So Moses descends the mountain and gathers the elders of the people, and he rehearses God's proposal to them. And famously, or maybe infamously, the people respond with their spontaneous and confident, we will do everything the Lord has said. And so that's our first ascent and descent completed. So we move on to the second one, which is the rest of verse 8 of chapter 19 through to verse 15. We read, so Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Back up the mountain. Here's what the people said. Israel accepted God's proposal. And so the Lord explained to Moses the arrangements whereby the people would be able to receive his word, his law, his covenant, 
And it would be an occasion of utmost solemnity. The Lord himself, the transcendent Lord, the God who is other, would personally descend upon Mount Sinai on the third day. And the people would see the presence of the Lord and would hear him speak to Moses and to them. And because the holy God was coming to meet with them, albeit in a protected way, the people must consecrate themselves. For the results will be deadly. If anyone transgresses the bounds that God has established. Only when the trumpet of invitation sounds will Israel be permitted to assemble in their clean clothes at the base of the mountain. And oh, that Israel might have maintained their sense of the majestic holiness of God in their subsequent history. But lest we feel tempted to throw stones, we ought to spend some time, and I'd ask you to look at this, Hebrews 12, verse 18 to 28, to look at it in your own time. Hebrews 12, 18 to 28, because that's that famous passage where the writer says, you know, we have not come to a terrifying, burning mountain that couldn't be... that could be touched in the sense it was physical, but couldn't be touched in the sense that God was there. The writer says, you haven't come to that. You people on the other side of Christ coming into the world and his sacrificial death, no, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. And he continues unpacking. And his point is this. On this side of the cross, our encounter with the awesome reality of God's holiness revealed through Christ and his work is actually greater than Israel's was at Sinai. That's why the writer concludes in Hebrews 12, 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. You see what he's saying? The God who came down at Sinai and the earth trembled. We're dealing with something far more serious than that. Ascent number three, chapter 19, verse 16 to 25. What must it have been to behold the descent of the Lord to Sinai on the third day? We're told it was a scene of thunder and lightning, of fire and smoke, and both the mountain 
and the people trembled. Verse 20, the Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. Here's our third ascent. (laughs) But this is remarkable. Immediately upon going up, the Lord tells him to go down and to warn the people again of the peril of their situation if they do not observe the limits that the Lord has placed around his presence. And though Moses responds to that and tells the Lord, but they know that. The Lord insists that Moses go back down the mountain and reinforce the restrictions that he has commanded. So verse 25 says, so Moses went down to the people and told them. So Moses is now back down, okay? Now it's important to note that as God begins speaking and giving Israel the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, he is speaking to all the people. This is a detail that may be missing if you have a children's Bible familiarity with the story of the giving of the law. Let me read you some verses from Deuteronomy which describe the event, and you'll get the significance of this. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. Horeb is another name for Sinai. When he said to me, Moses is speaking, when he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You, the people, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens, with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote them on two stone tablets. Verse 33 of the same chapter. Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? You see, it was only after hearing God speak directly to the people, the ten ten words, the ten commandments, only then did the people request that Moses act as their mediator. They couldn't bear it. And they asked him to relay to them what the Lord would then say to him. Chapter 20, verse 18 and 19. And so that brings us to our fourth ascent. You see what I'm doing in giving you these ascents? I'm giving you a narrative framework to take you through these chapters. 
And the fourth ascent is covered between chapter 20, verse 21, through to chapter 24, verse 3. As mediator, Moses ascends the mountain and receives the Lord's detailed directions for the life of his people. Remember, they've already heard the Ten Commandments. What Moses receives now is referred to as the Book of the Covenant, chapter 24, verse 7. And it differs from the Ten Commandments in that it is a collection of civil and ceremonial laws that Israel is to observe in its day-to-day life as the people of God. The Ten Commandments express God's moral law, giving general principles that are to govern the inner life of the people, that will shape how they relate to God and how they relate to one another. The Book of the Covenant, however, gives a whole range of case laws. You know, if such and such a thing happens, then this is what you do. These laws, and they're not intended to cover every possible scenario, how could they? But they express again and again God's principles of justice and compassion. And they also contain regulations for how the people are to worship God by observing the Sabbath. And through the three annual compulsory festivals when all the men were to appear before the Lord. Now it's important to note what happens when Moses returns and relays the Lord's laws and regulations for the people. Chapter 24, verse 3. For a second time, and this time understanding the detail of what their obedience is to look like, the people declare, again, everything the Lord has said we will do. And in response to this, At God's command, Moses wrote down everything that God had said and that Israel had consented to. And preparations were then made for the covenant sealing ceremony. This involved the building of an altar, the erection of 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes, and a series of sacrifices, and the sprinkling of blood on both the altar and the people. And for a third time, having heard the book of the covenant read again, the people declared, guess what? We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey, chapter 24, verse 8. Upon the completion And the sealing of the covenant, Moses, along with Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, 
and 70 elders of Israel were permitted by God to partially ascend the mountain where they had the holy privilege of witnessing something of the divine glory. If you read it carefully, they saw the area around God's feet. And in celebration of the nation's relationship with God, the Israelite leaders feasted in God's presence. The ratification of the covenant is highly significant for it transformed the Israelites into a holy nation, preparing the way for God to come and dwell in their midst. Now, I haven't counted that partial ascent of the mountain as one of Moses' seven ascents, because on this occasion, he goes with others and he takes his place as one of the people. But when the covenant ceremony and the meal was concluded, the Lord summoned Moses to ascend further up Mount Sinai and to remain there where he would receive the stone tablets with the ten words inscribed by the finger of God. Exodus 31 verse 18. So we have arrived at Moses' fifth ascent. Any altitude sickness yet? His fifth ascent is covered in chapter 24, verse 12, right through to chapter 32, verse 15, where the golden calf incident is in full swing. For six days, a cloud of fire burned on Mount Sinai. And on the seventh day, Moses entered the cloud where he remained for 40 days and 40 nights. Now it's absolutely vital that we appreciate what happens next. Yes, Moses receives the tablets of the law, but that's not what these chapters are about. These chapters are all about the tabernacle. When Moses was to return to the people, God said he was to instruct them to bring their free will offerings of a whole range of prescribed items for this purpose. Exodus 25 verse 8, the last verse we read in our reading. This is so important. Then let them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. That is such an important verse. Here is the purpose of redemption writ large. It is God's desire to dwell in the midst of his people, to be at the very center of their life. This is what makes them a holy nation, a people set apart from all others. The Lord is in their midst. 
He has his tent among their tents. As Israel will continue on its journey to Canaan, their promised inheritance, the Lord himself will travel with them. And the instructions that Moses receives explain how it is that a holy God can dwell in the midst of a sinful people. And that's a subject in its own right. But suffice to say that everything, everything about the tabernacle structure and its priesthood points in every detail to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But keeping the tabernacle in its historical context, let's just note this. As God gives his law to his people, which he knew they couldn't keep, but they didn't, he also gave them the place and the procedure where their sin could be atoned for. With the giving of the law, came God's merciful provision. And as we consider Israel's future, isn't it a good job that it did? Let me just conclude the story of Moses' ascent of Mount Sinai, just for your own structure of the, the, the book. This is ascent number six, and this now follows Moses' return to the camp and the worship of the golden calf. It runs from 32, verse 31 to 35. And this is a brief, but no less significant ascent for Moses goes to intercede for the nation, which has broken the covenant. And he successfully pleads for the people. And though there will be further judgment in the form of a plague, Yet the Lord promised that he would send his angel and bring the people safely to, their, to the promised land. And then the seventh and final ascent comes in chapter 34, verse 2 to 29. And the purpose of Moses' final ascent was to receive the rewritten tablets of law and to renew the covenant. And Israel was given permission to move ahead with the construction of God's dwelling place that he might assume the leadership of his people on their onward pilgrimage. Now I want to use the remainder of our time to make a few comments on the relevance of all this to us as Christians who live in relationship with God under the terms of the new covenant. What do we need to know about the old covenant, the law that God gave to Israel? And I'm going to mention three things that I think are helpful to understand. The first one is this, the purpose of the old covenant 
the law. Purpose of it. And surely this is an area of dreadful, even deadly confusion among religious people. I need to underline what I said earlier. The law was not given as the means of securing Israel's redemption. It was not given as some ladder of merit whereby the people might claim their way to acceptance with God. That was never the purpose of the law. The law was given to a people whom God had already redeemed by his grace and power. God had drawn a people to himself and the law was given to establish the terms of their life together. It was his instrument of government for his people. It revealed his holy character. And that was then to be reflected in the lives of God's people. And it's vital that we understand this. God did not give the law to people outside of relationship with him as the means for them to gain acceptance with him. The law was given to govern the people, not to save them. And yet, how do many religious people treat the Ten Commandments today? If I do my best to keep them, then I hope that God will accept me and allow me into his heaven. This is a misunderstanding and a misuse of the law. The law expresses God's holiness. And in so doing, exposes our sinfulness. It shows us how hopelessly far short we fall. But the law itself does not solve the problem of sin. It exposes it. It can't solve the problem of sin. God did not give the Ten Commandments, the law in that narrow sense, on its own. Along with it, he gave Israel the tabernacle with its priesthood and altar and sacrifices, which was his gracious provision for the sinfulness of the people. How foolish it is to attempt to relate to God on the basis of law alone. It would be the equivalent of an Israelite saying to God, just give me the commandments, but you can keep the tabernacle with its priesthood and its sacrifices. I don't need anyone to represent me and to make atonement for my sin. I can do this myself. And that is self-righteous delusion rooted in a perversion of God's law. The purpose of the law, secondly, the limitation of the old covenant, the limitation of the law. 
The law was not a means of salvation. But even as an instrument of government, the law struggled to deliver. Yes, the law was good in itself and it brought good where it was obeyed. Of course it did. For it reflected God's own character and upheld his values of holiness and justice and compassion. But the fundamental problem with the law was that it depended upon Israel's obedience. The law was a two-party covenant. Both God and Israel had responsibilities to each other. If you will, I will, is the language of the old covenant. If you obey me, says God, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. And so we know how that's going to go. Israel was never going to be able to deliver the obedience that the law called for. And that's the story of the Old Testament. Israel repeatedly breaks the covenant. And even though God raises up prophets to call the people back to covenant faithfulness, it all ends in tears or rather in captivity. The wonder of the new covenant under which we live in relationship with God is that it is a one-party covenant. Under the new covenant, God guarantees his people, Hebrews 8 verse 10, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Notice that. Under the new covenant, God doesn't lower his standard. He raises his people up. He underwrites their transformation. And through the agency of the indwelling spirit given to all who trust in Christ, we are, in the words of Paul in Romans 8 verse 4, enabled to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. It's wonderful to get the hold of this, folks. God has pledged himself to write his law on our hearts so we are not on our own as we seek to fulfill the law of Christ, which is higher again, Galatians 6, verse 2. And I'm reminded of Paul's words to the Philippians. Chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. Thirdly and finally, the annulment of the old covenant, the law. Because the new covenant is now in place, the old covenant is rendered obsolete. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. But let me point out what that does mean and what it doesn't mean. None of the laws contained in the book of the covenant apply today. No one living today is a citizen of ancient Israel to whom those laws were given. And not only are the civil aspects of the law redundant, 
so are its ceremonial requirements. There is no tabernacle or priesthood today, and neither is there any need for them. For Christ has fulfilled all that they pointed to. The guardianship of the law is over. It has fulfilled its function in salvation history. But don't think that God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, has passed away in the same sense that the civil and ceremonial law has. With the exception of the Sabbath command, the Sabbath being the sign of the Old Covenant, all other nine commandments are repeated in the New Testament and are to be lived out in our lives. Let me say it again, with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But we must understand the distinction between the Ten Commandments which continue to express God's standards and the book of the covenant, those civil and ceremonial laws, which has fulfilled its purpose. So let me conclude with this. When Israel arrived at Mount Sinai, they discovered the goal of their redemption. God had brought them to himself And he invited them into a unique relationship with him whereby they would live as his holy people and shine light, shine God's light to the surrounding nations. And God explained the terms of this ongoing relationship. They must obey him fully and give their loyalty exclusively to him. He spelled out the specifics of what it would mean to live as his people. With more than a little self-confidence, the people pledged their total obedience. And God took them at their word and entered into covenant with them. He would govern his people through the terms of the covenant. And he would come and dwell among them as their companion God. And in his mercy, he provided for their failure through the priesthood and the sacrificial system. That's what these chapters 19 to 31 are all about. Israel is granted the awesome privilege of living as the people of God, with God in their midst, as they journey on to the promised land. What could possibly go wrong? As we'll see next time, Moses will not even have made it down the mountain carrying the covenant before Israel has broken the first three commandments in the most outrageous manner. That's where we're going in our next study in the book of Exodus, the incident of the golden calf and the great apostasy described in Exodus 32. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.